Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and on today's show, we're going to be wrapping up our series on the May election by focusing on propositions F, G, and H. In case you didn't listen to our last episode, as a quick reminder, Austin is having an election on eight different ballot propositions on May 1st, with early voting starting on April 19th. If you want to learn more about propositions A, B, C, D, and E, go back and give a quick listen to our last two episodes because we cover those in a lot of detail. But today is all about propositions F, G, and H, which means we're going to be talking a lot about democracy and money in politics. Okay, so first up is Prop F. Here's what it's going to say on your ballot. Quote, Shall the city charter be amended to change the form of city government from council manager to strong mayor council, which will eliminate the position of professional city manager and designate an elected mayor as the chief administrative and executive officer of the city with veto power over all legislation, which includes the budget, and with sole authority to hire and fire most department heads and direct staff, and with no articulated or stated charter authority to require the mayor to implement council decisions. End quote. Okay, so what the heck does that mean? <laughs> Let's break it down a bit. Um, right now in Austin, we have what's called a council manager form of government. And here's how that works. We have 10 city council members elected from 10 city council districts. And then we also have a mayor who's elected citywide, but who essentially just serves as the 11th member of city council. Basically, because we have a council manager form of government, our mayor doesn't actually have a lot of additional formal powers above that of a regular city council member. He does get to run the city council meetings, he has more staff, and he has the benefit of receiving more immediate attention than the rest of council because he's elected citywide, but that's about it. And so city council and the mayor are then responsible for directing policy for the city. They create laws, which are called ordinances, they set goals, and they dictate the direction of the city. But they're not actually responsible for implementing those policies. That job falls on the city manager. The city manager is a paid professional, hired and fired by city council, who is responsible for running the day-to-day operations of the city. So they oversee our city's 13,500 employees and our $4 billion budget. Right now, our city manager's name is Spencer Kronk, in case you've heard that pop up in the news at all. Um, Sometimes the relationship between city council and the city manager is described as being similar to a CEO and a board of directors, if that helps you conceptualize it at all. Um, now, So to explain it even more, here's an example of how this works in real life. Each year, the city manager is responsible for putting together the first draft of the city's budget. Um, this is a huge document <laughs> with details and information from all of the city departments. Um, in other words, it's a lot of work to put together. So the city manager talks to all the department heads and communicates with the public and then puts together the first draft. The budget is then sent to city council, who holds public hearings, and changes it however they see fit. They then approve the final document and send it back to the city manager to actually spend the money, as council has laid out, over the course of the next year. So if you remember this past summer, we had a lot of controversy and conversation around the police budget. The city manager's initial draft of the budget included only minor cuts to the police department budget, and so city council 
changed it, <laughs> basically, and voted to make pretty dramatic changes to that, handed it back to city council, the city manager and said, please create a plan that allows us to cut, you know, this amount of money from the cities, from the police department budget. Okay, so that's our current system. Then what is Prop F about exactly? Uh, so Prop F is another one of the propositions put forth by the group Austinites for Progressive Reform. If you remember from our previous podcast, they gathered the signatures necessary to put Props D through H on the ballot. And of these propositions, Prop F is by far the most controversial. Because Prop F asked voters if we should change from a council manager form of government, which I just described, to what is called a strong mayor or a mayor-council system of government. So here's what would happen if Prop F passes. First, the mayor will no longer serve on city council. Instead, the mayor will become the chief executive of the city, basically replacing the city manager, whose job will be eliminated. This will make our local system of government more similar to what you see at the state or federal level, where the mayor becomes in charge of the executive branch and the city council remains kind of the separate legislative branch. Another key component of the system that's been receiving a lot of press is that the mayor will gain veto power over any ordinances that city council passes. However, city council can override that veto with a two-thirds vote. So that's the basics. <laughs> and um, since it's pretty closely related, let me just do a quick explanation of Prop G right now as well. Um, here's the ballot language for Prop G. Quote, Shall the city charter be amended to provide for an additional geographic council district, which will result in 11 council members elected from single member districts? End quote. So what does that mean? Uh, basically, Prop G is on the ballot to avoid an even number of votes on city council if Prop F passes. So right now we have 11 council members because the mayor serves on city council. But if Prop F were to pass and he no longer serves on city council, it will only have 10 members, which is an even number, which could lead to tied votes. So that's why Prop G is there. Okay. <laughs> so I know all of this might seem a little bit in the weeds, but I just want you to know that Prop F is a big deal. So whichever way you feel about it, it represents a fundamental change to the way our local government system operates. So I encourage you all to do your research on it, which we're going to help you do right now. Um, but before we hear from some supporters and opponents of Prop F, I just want to run through a few quick terms and definitions that you're going to hear over the course of our conversations. Uh, the first is 10-1. 10-1 is the term used to describe our current government structure. 10 council members, one mayor, 10-1. Um, it was only implemented in 2014 after another citizen signature drive changed us from having at-large city council members to district representation. Before, it was still a council manager form of government, but our council members were all elected citywide, making it harder for diverse candidates to win. Um, and it's pretty generally accepted as a positive change that has led to increased accountability and accessibility at City Hall. And then the last term I want to cover real quick is boards and commissions. We've already done a podcast on this, but boards and commissions are basically just groups that advise city council on a wide range of topics from women's rights to transportation to healthy food access. And they're made up of regular Austin residents who are appointed by the mayor and city council. Okay, enough explanations. Those are just terms I know we're going to talk about, so I wanted to give you a little bit more info about them. Uh, let's go into the interviews. First up, we have Jesus Garza, 
Jesus was the city manager of Austin from 1994 to 2002. Right now, he's working with the group Austin for All People, which has formed to oppose Prop F. All right, let's give that interview a listen. All right, I'm here with Jesus, and um, we're going to be talking all about Prop Prop F today. And um, this really has to do with the way our government, the very structure of our government. Um, so, Jesus, I'm wondering if you can uh, kick us out off by explaining like our current government structure, which is called, I guess, council manager form of government. Yes, is that how it's referred to? Right, right. The current the current structure is called the council manager system. And cities use a variety of structures uh, to run their local governments. Uh, you, use, you can use a commission form of government where people are elected to police commission, uh, the health commission, et cetera. Uh, you'll have a, a mayor, but it'll be a commission form of government where they have their own power, much like the county. The county's got a bunch of elected offices and then you've got a county judge. You also can have a strong mayor. And what happens with a strong mayor system is the mayor is the chief elected officer and beneath that mayor, appointed by the mayor and reporting to the mayor would be an administrator. And then you'd have a bunch of deputy mayors, you'd have a bunch of directors that would be political appointees by the mayor. The council then would be the legislative body. And that's how a strong mayor system essentially works. The council manager system came out of the progressive era. There were many people who worried about the uh, political corruption within municipal government, uh, contractuals, uh, you know, uh, things that were happening that would be, uh, you know, kind of uh, from a unethical, if you will. And right. So it makes me, it want. makes, it makes me think of maybe like the, you know, the old days in like Philadelphia or New York, when you hear That's about right. these like strongman mayors. Boss Tweed, all those yeah. kinds of things. You had, of course you had uh, Dick Daly, the boss of Chicago, uh, uh, and they ruled with an iron fist. That's, that, that's the way they ran their cities. And, uh, and, and what happens, uh, what happened with that movement is to say, what we want to do is separate politics from administration. What we want to do is elect our officials. They're the leaders. And I want to just emphasize to everyone who's listening, the, uh, the mayor and the council are in charge. They appropriate the money. They decide what projects get funded. They decide what projects go before the voters on a, on a bond issue so that the voters can then decide whether to build a library, whether to build a expand a street. Those decisions are all made by the mayor and the Austin City Council. The, the city manager then is simply executes and delivers on those things that they have appropriated money for. And I think if people can think of it this way, the money is the power. That is the way, that's the way government works. It's the people who appropriate the dollars that are in charge. And that's the way our current system of government works. The mayor and council adopt a budget, they adopt a capital budget, and I think all of those things then uh, are executed by the, the, the administrative structure. But what happens is under state law, all of those contracts, all of those issues that have to get done to run a city are done in accordance with state law. Now, they uh, have to be bid, professional services have to be, go through a consulting process to select the best uh, professional services. And then usually you give the council a couple of options besides that. And that is to remove all of that process from any political interference. And uh, so the manager indirectly, by re being responsive to the community, to the count, the mayor and council, and the mayor and council being responsive to the community, the manager is being responsive indirectly to the community. Because if that person doesn't do what the council wants them to do, then they'll be removed from office, and someone else will be selected. Right. Council has the ability to hire and fire the city manager. 
And there's another really important feature in, in this uh, system of government is the manager works for the mayor and the council. So they work, uh, they work for, for the, the council members as well as the mayor. And um, as a result of that, the information on any matter of policy has to be shared with everyone. In other words, there's complete transparency. So there's an item from council that says, we wanna explore an item that's a major policy issue, say around public safety, and it requires a report. When all that information gets put together, it doesn't get shared just with the council members that place the item on the agenda. It gets shared with the entire council so that there can be a full and complete public debate. You know, one of the things that has really impressed me about the city of Austin is that it has a very active citizens group, I mean, citizenry, and they are very concerned. They're very uh, active and concerned with all the different things that are going on at the city. You have a lot of boards and commissions, and typically, what happens on a major policy issue that the council's wanting to be a, uh, there to be a detailed study, when that begins to get worked, if it's, a, if it's really unique to a department like water, wastewater or Austin Energy, that information goes to the board and commission and they, and they hash it out in terms of how that would work for that department or the community. And then it works, it, it works its way back through the system, back to the, onto a council agenda but with enormous amount of citizen input. And what typically has happened in Austin, the mayor and the council, because they realize that there's an active citizenry, they wanna make sure that there's a public hearing so that the people can come speak to the council, provide information about what their concerns might be or might not be before an adoption of a, a major policy. And it's really one of the unique aspects of Austin. It's got a very active uh, group and, uh, and it's been very helpful in terms of directing the, the direction of the city or providing direction to the city. Yeah, and I, I want to clarify for folks, because I think this is a point of confusion for people who um, are not uh, heavily involved with the city, is kind of the role currently of the mayor and city council. I, I think there is still a lot of misconception. Um, you know, the mayor in our current system doesn't really have a lot of extra powers. He really is this 11th member of city council. He has a few more staff, and obviously he's elected by everyone in the city. So he's more, you know, that, that elevates his position a bit, but powers wise, he, you know, he runs the council meetings, but he doesn't have a lot more powers than the rest of city council. He's really just another member, right? Is that a fair characterization? Well, I mean, it, I think that's what people, I think that's what, um, that's what you hear people say, mm -hmm. but, um, power really, uh, uh, is, is a difficult issue to completely uh, parse out. Yeah. The mayor is the leader of the council. And mm -hmm. all the time I worked, I worked at the city almost 20 years. There was never any doubt from any member of the staff, any member of the staff, that they knew the mayor was the chief elected officer for the city of Austin. Now, there, that didn't mean that the council members didn't have authority. That didn't mean the council members didn't have influence. But the mayor held a special place uh, uh, in, in, in the way the organization reacted to them. Mm -hmm. um, the mayor also has the ability to, because the community sees it that way. Right. So when the mayor speaks and says, I'm against this and here's why I'm against it, or I'm for this and here's why, that has a powerful, powerful force. And uh, so I don't want to say that the council members can't do that, but really hit the, the, the megaphone of the mayor yes. is different than the megaphone of the council members. And, and I, that yes, he is one vote. So technically, 
they just have one vote, but they also have the power, the bully pulpit, if you will, the ability, mm -hmm. the ability to articulate of why we need a certain direction. And council members, quite frankly, uh, understand that dynamic, and uh, they they uh, and that's how kind of the system works. And so, uh, so that is the conception that people have. But but I think the 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 one of the key issues as to why people think the mayor and the council don't have power. And I want to go back to, they get to appropriate, the, the council members have the authority, the mayor and council appropriate money. They approve budgets. They approve amendments to budgets. The manager can't do that. The staff can't do that. And so I think that's a pretty, pretty significant, uh, uh, that's a pretty significant power by the elected officials. What they can't do under the charter is they can't, uh, they cannot fire department heads. That authority rests solely with the city manager. And there's a reason. If you remember, I, we talked back about when this was created, we wanted to take politics out of the administration of the city. And so if, you, if a director, for instance, makes a recommendation that the council members don't like, and so they say, hey, we got to fire him, and then you allow that to happen, well, that will, that what you'll have done is introduce politics into a department level that you don't have now. Because what you get is a professional recommendation without fear of reprisal and without fear of uh, somebody coming at you and just to try to, to change your recommendation because you're politically don't, that recommendation does not politically align with what your view might be if you're a council member or a mayor. So, I mean, I think that's where the really, the folks get, uh, uh, they focus on. But there's a reason for that being there. And that is to really, and it's not to protect the staff. And it's not, there is this always this notion, the staff outlast the council members. But the fact is the staff are typically just professionals. They're architects, they're engineers, they're accountants. Most of them don't have a political bone in their body. So when you tell them, would you recommend X or Y? When they're gonna give you an honest answer, it's without political, it's out with, without a political lens. And I think that's what the citizens would want because that way you then have that recommendation. And then you, the council then has to filter that recommendation. They, they use the political filter to think through how that would get accepted by the community. And would it not be accepted by the community? And what do they have to, rec what would they have to vote on to make a little change to that recommendation by the staff? And I'll give you an example. Austin is very, uh, has always wanted to have a robust conservation program uh, because it's important for us to conserve energy. The, uh, and this is back in my history when I was with the city. Austin Energy uh, didn't initially, back in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 90s when I was manager, didn't, didn't want to have an emphasis on that. They, I mean, they did want to spend some money, but not as much as the council wanted to. Well, the council made the decision to do more because that's within their prerogative. And then, that, and then Austin Energy did more. But they recommended why they didn't think that they recommended why they thought those initial expenditures above what they were recommending might not be uh, as effectively spent. But I think you needed to hear that, but then you still have to make a policy decision. And once that decision gets made, doesn't matter what your recommendation was, you execute it. Right. And so I want to talk a little bit more about this hiring and firing capabilities, because I think you're right. I think this is one of the um, sticking points or what gets brought up. Um, and, and so what you're speaking to is that, you know, city manager, he's the one that can hire and fire the department heads and, um, 
you know, you can see why that would have happened, right? You also probably don't want a situation where, you know, the mayor or whatever is just picking his friend to run the Austin resource recovery. And that person has no experience running that kind of a department, right? They're just like a, a big donor of the mayor or something. You could see a world where that could happen pretty easily and does right at the national level sometimes. Um, And then on the other side, I think where you hear some pushback in a real world example was this year, for example, there was some calls from some on city council to remove our police chief. I think they weren't yeah. very happy with his performance. And, right. and, and all of a sudden it brought up this thing where, you know, I think most Austinites or many Austinites didn't even know what a city manager was or the name of our city manager. And all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, they were protesting at his house and all of this. They're like, yeah. all these people are talking about Spencer Cronk. I was like, how did you even, when did we start talking about Spencer Cronk? But it became an issue because all of a sudden, you know, he's the only one who has that capability. Um, right. I guess I wonder how you viewed that situation, right? And how's it working? Because I think that's probably an argument that you're going to hear from folks who are for the strong mayor yeah, system is sure. we had a strong mayor system. The mayor could have just fired the police chief. Right. Um, what's kind of, how do you feel like this system, the one we have now works in some way or, or dealt with that situation? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, and that's a really, and it's a fair question and it's one that, that is being asked. So I think that it's one that bears, uh, some, some effort, it bears uh, an importance for us to try to answer it. Let let me, uh, and there is always a little bit of a, a nuance to the, to that issue of, of, of department heads and, and, and ACMs. So Here's the filter that the manager always needs to use, always. It's important for those directors to have the confidence of the community and have the confidence of the city council. It's always important. That's an important consideration in determining whether a department head can be effective in doing their jobs. Once that confidence has been been broken with that inability to get the council to understand a recommendation from that director for additional resources or for additional direction, that director loses their effectiveness to run that department. And I'm, I'm speaking in general terms, not, not to speak specifically about the right. police department. And so that, so the manager needs to understand that. And, uh, and if that confidence is lost so that every item before the city council for that department turns into a public debate resources not being allocated, direction not being given, where you basically are stalemated, then you have a department that begins to wither on the vine. And you mm-hmm. don't ever want to have that. You don't want to have that happen. So you have to be sensitive to that. Now, what you don't want to do is you don't ever want to do a public execution. It's that, first of all, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong for Austin. We don't, I don't like that in Austin. I mean, I don't, I, we tried to never do that in Austin. So you, you deal with it on a professional basis so that when that individual has lost their effectiveness, you have conversations with them about what's happened and what's transpired and why. And then you decide that, that the, the music has stopped basically and it may be time to move on. The public would never see that. In other words, you, you would, that person would just end up leaving and, uh, mm-hmm. and no longer work for the city of Austin and you, and you treat them with dignity and respect that they deserve and that's the way I want our city to be. And that's the way it should be. Uh, but you also need to understand, you've got to be responsive to the community. If, if you have, for instance, if you're, uh, you mentioned Austin Resource Recovery, that has a cadre of citizens that are very interested in a certain direction for that department. And if that department has lost that connection that's critical to it functioning effectively within the city, then you have to use that judgment about whether that person can, be, can do their job or not. 
Uh, and quite frankly, that's the same thing with the city manager. When, when the city manager has lost that connection, the council has lost its confidence in that ability, that individual to manage and operate and lead the city, they need to make a change. That's the way it should work. Uh, these jobs for, for the city manager jobs typically are not jobs that you take for 30 years. It's a job that you work at for five, six, seven years, eight years. I was there eight years, but there comes a time when your ability to lead that city now has been uh, has, has made more difficult because of all the decisions that you've made and the community has begun to, to lose its uh, confidence, the council and the community lose its confidence in that individual. Right. Is there a is a answer? check. Is yeah, correct? there's a check on the city. I mean, city council can fire the city manager. Absolutely. And, you know, I have no idea what happened behind the scenes this summer um, or in the time since around the police chief and and such. But I imagine that if all of city council were truly passionate and, and upset, they could have forced a change. They they have that power. I suppose. They have that power because the ultimate power the ultimate they could fire the city manager. They, they, they get rid of the city manager. I mean, the, the city manager then is not being responsive. Uh, and, and that's indirect and it's nuanced, but right. it's important because here you've got a bunch of, you've got to remember these directors, again, are engineers, they're architects, they're social workers, they're, they're people who have a, an advanced degree in administration, but they're not politicians. And so if you have political pressure and then you immediately remove that individual, all of your directors begin to see, well, wait a minute, Politics does drive the basis of my employment. And so when somebody asks me for a recommendation, I'm not going to give it. I'm going to keep my head low. I'm not going to try to innovate. I'm not going to try to do new things because when I try new things, I'm going to get, I'm going to catch a lot of heat for it. So it's better for me. It's safer to just do the same old, same old, which basically not bring change, not, not be effective as a leader. And when you begin to have that problem, then the city is itself stops functioning effectively. And I think that's that's the balance that's needed. It's not it's not a hard it's not easy to do that, uh, but I think it's not clearly understood about how that should work. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, you and your experience as a city manager. You know, another thing that I that I hear or I think comes up when you talk about maybe switching to the strong mayor form of government is you know, the role of mayor and the skill set is so different than what our current mayor would be required to do. You know, like, I think that most people, you pick an elected official because you like what they're saying, right? You like their ideas and um, their policies. But just because you like that doesn't mean that that individual has the ability to run what's essentially a $4 billion organization, right? There's like, um, that's a that's a very specific skill set um, that might be hard to find both in one person. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit yeah. about that and kind of your history of like uh, with the experience you had before you became city manager. Yeah. So let me let me just uh, and I'll try not to bore you or <laughs> sound like I'm being braggadocious, but I I, I worked for the city of Austin like I said almost uh, 20 years. Now it's in two in, I had two tours of duty. The first one was about 10, and the second one was close to 10. But here's what I, this is, this is just a quick rundown. I worked in the city manager's office. I was an assistant. I then went to public works and I worked in public works for almost four years. Uh, in public works, I ran the sanitation department which is now Austin Resource Recovery. I then had operational departments of street and bridge, the cemeteries, 
I handled the capital program for the for where all the bulk of the capital dollars got run through public works. I ran vehicle equipment services, which is a support department uh, for the for the city of Austin for running its fleet. Uh, I then uh, became an assistant city manager. I went to the city of Corpus Christi. I ran the uh, I was the assistant city manager over public over the public utilities, which meant the gas company, the water company, the uh, street and bridge company. Those were all uh, departments that reported to me. I was the deputy city manager in the city of Corpus Christi. Then I came back to Austin and became uh, an, an ACM. Then I became city manager. In those twenty, in those uh, ten years prior to being appointed city manager, I had a lot of experience in how to run a city. I mean, I, I had a lot of experience. I knew how garbage routes got run. I, I, I had a lot of detail work, operational knowledge, and uh, and so I used that knowledge to manage the city when I became when I was appointed. Uh, so this is what it would happen with the mayor because you know we elect mayors right for their political, not just their their charisma. We elect them for their the way they articulate a vision for the city. The mayor is going to uh, uh, hire an administrator that would have had experience like I did. Only that administrator isn't going to work for the mayor and the council. It's going to work only for the mayor. Then you're going to have a bunch of deputy mayors, and those deputy mayors will work for the mayor, not for the council. And then what's going to happen is that each department, especially the departments that may have a lot of politics, you're going to have a political appointee running that department. And underneath that department, you're going to have a you're going to have now what's what is now a director. The people that are directors now would be just a step below because they're the subject matter experts for that department. They they understand how a water system is supposed to work. They understand how an electric system is supposed to work. And a political appointee is not going to necessarily have that knowledge, uh, at least unless it's a unique person that uh, that's selected by the mayor. Uh, and so. And then when decisions have to be made, which is key here, those, those decisions uh, will go to the mayor and the mayor then will decide how that gets communicated to the council about what needs to get done or what item needs to get put on the agenda. And so, I mean, I, so it, it, it takes a long time to get ready to run a city that's complex. Our, in Austin, I'd say is one of the most complex because it runs an electric utility, it runs a water utility, it runs a full, a, a, a great airport at Austin Bergstrom, uh, the Barbara Jordan Terminal. It, uh, it has the, the uh, you know, a lot of cities contract out garbage service or, or resource recovery. We don't, which is a, a credit to the city of Austin. We run a street department, which is a lot of construction work, a lot of blue collar workers that uh, work very hard every day to make sure our streets work. We have a drainage system to, that needs a lot of maintenance and a lot of, you know, so you've got a lot of different, and then you've got a public health department where you have doctors and you've got social workers and you've got infectious disease experts because it's important for the public health department to protect us from infectious disease. Uh, these are all technocrats, if you will. And, uh, and you, so you need to know how to work with them to make sure that we effectively run those departments. So you, so you're right. I mean, the, the, the mayor would in all likelihood hire an administrator to help him, help him or her run the city. Right. OK, so the mayor still gets to hire an administrator, but you're, you're adding the mayor still's role is changing significantly. They still probably have to have, you know, even though they're not maybe running day to day, they're going to have to have more of an administrative mindset than perhaps our current mayor does. That's right. Okay. And then, you know, you're kind of pointing to it. They're going to have to know how stuff works. They're going to have to know how things work. Right. Yeah. They're going to have to get into the nitty gritty a bit more. Um, 
And, and, you know, another thing you kind of pointed to there that seems to me like one of the biggest changes with this potentially is, is the shifting role of our city council. So like right now, like you mentioned, you know, our current mayor does have some of this bully pulpit, more of this soft power, you know, he leads the city council, but each city council member, you know, everyone still has one vote. And a lot, we have very active city council members right now who like push a lot of their own policies and, Um, as a constituent, it's obviously much easier to connect with your city council member often than the mayor. Um, It seems to me like switching to this strong mayor system lessens the power of city council. Is that accurate? That is accurate. The the council members under the strong mayor proposal proposition F uh, places the, uh, if it were to be adopted, the council members would be in a very different role. uh, So a council member who's not aligned with the mayor Will be will be kind of taken to the back bench and say, you know what, we'll call on you when we need you, and so they they become less effective as a representative for their specific district. That's just the way it's going to work. I mean, because it'll, it'll about that point, it's all about alignment. Who's aligned with the mayor? Who's is who's able to bring their proposals forward and, and get some uh, some policy traction, if you will. The other thing that makes the, the, that that is reinforced by and you, we haven't mentioned it yet, but we should under this proposal, the mayor will veto legislation approved by the city council. And it would take a super majority of the council to override that veto. This is a huge change. We do not have anything like this right now. It is a huge change. And so council members, if they felt less power under a strong mayor system, because, you know, if you're not aligned, my policies can't even get to first base. It's put on steroids when you say not only that, if you were to be successful in getting something through council and you're not aligned with me, I'll veto it. And it's going to take two thirds of a, of a vote to override that veto. That is a powerful position to be in. I think one of the things that bears two things that I think are misunderstood. People think that the city, that the, the, the mayor is not going to attend council meetings under this proposal. The mayor, uh, and they think that the city council is going to be putting together the agenda. Somebody said that to me in one of the forums I was at. Well, the council will put together the agenda. No, that's not true. That's, there's, it, it can't work that way. The mayor is going to put together either directly or indirectly will put this, the agendas together every week. And here's why. All of those agenda items that get placed on the council's agenda for approval are generated by the department heads. And the department heads will be working for the deputy mayors and for the administrator and for the mayor. So the mayor is going to have a, a, a significant role in putting that agenda together. And so uh, you know, I could see where if, if, if the council has items from council, where the, there, there may be a way to block those items from getting on the agenda. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't specifically say that, but it could potentially happen. And, uh, but certainly the veto, the, pow- the threat of a veto is also a dampening effect. And so not only do you have those things that will manifest themselves because you're aligned, but if you're not aligned, you're not even gonna bring those proposals forward because it's dead on arrival. Right. You know, I, I wanna touch back on something that you mentioned earlier, which is, um, the way that switching to a strong mayor system could fundamentally change Austin or kind of the way we do things. I wonder if you can expand on that a bit more or explain again. I think this is an issue that feels it, it's pretty technical, or I, I think that there's a group of people who are very engaged with city council who have a lot of thoughts on it. But for the average citizen, it's like, well, why should I have an unelected city manager when I can have an elected mayor? Right. It, it feels. But but I think what you're hinting at is like 
this goes much deeper. Can you, can you give us that higher level? Like how could this really change our city? Right. Well, I mean, the, 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 the first way is what the couple of things that we've already mentioned is your council will going to be in a, the city council is going to be in a very different role uh, in this new system. Uh, some of them that aren't aligned with the mayor are, are going to have their power uh, curtailed. So you have that issue. The other thing is, is if this is not on the mayor's agenda, if the mayor is the one that's making the decisions about the things that need to get done, you may have something that you're passionate about, but hasn't made their list of things we need to worry about. And so you may, that, that issue may never get to the top of the agenda so that it can get adequately addressed. Even when a, a council member may put an item on the agenda for it to be reviewed, developed, the mayor could say to that department head, you know what, put that on the back burner. I don't think that's a big issue. We're not going to bring back. We're going to bring back that ordinance. We're going to hold on to it. Um, and so you, I mean, so so basically, the power structure has shifted, so that the mayor's in, in effect calling the shots. And so, if you have a citizens a group that is uh, very interested in certain things, that uh, the mayor certainly doesn't quite agree with what those things ought to be, those get put to the bottom. You know, the, it's just like the politics in Washington. And the citizen may have less access to the mayor. I mean, let's be honest. You know, this system could lead. I'm not saying that it would necessarily, but it could lead to pay, pay, uh, pay to play. Mm-hmm. And pay to play means if you want an audience with department heads or want an audience with the mayor, have you contributed to the campaigns uh, for, for when I've run for re-election or my campaign when I'm going to be running for re-election? Now there's nothing, I mean, I mean, I heard Mick Mulvaney, who was the chief of staff for President uh, Trump, basically say in, on national television, the way I decide who I meet with is I go through the donor list and the people at the top of the donor list is who I meet with. I mean, he just said it unabashedly. Again, I can't, I won't, I can't say whether that would happen in Austin, but if it did happen in Austin, that would be very different because I'm, I can promise you the mayor, the council, the city manager, certainly I did, we met with anybody who anybody who needed an appointment. We would meet with them. Uh, I could, would give people my direct line on on my desk, and people would call it, and they would ask me. They they could access me, and that's because you know that's what the expectation of the council was that we had to return phone calls. We had to be connected to the community. Now we weren't perfect. No one's perfect, and so I'm sure there are going to be examples where maybe we didn't do as well as we should. But it's always good to be reminded when you didn't do as well as you should, so that you can have something to strive for. So that's Jesus Garza with the no argument for Prop F. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Joa Spearman, who is the founder and CEO of Localer and serves on the leadership committee of Austinites for Progressive Reform. He'll be making the argument for why Prop F should pass. Okay, let's give that a listen. Okay, I'm here with Joa, and we're going to be talking all about Prop F. Um which is an exciting one for folks who are, you know, like me, (laughs) who are really interested in civics and how our different system works. It gets a little wonky, but I want to make sure we take the time to explain it all for everyone because um, it could mean a pretty significant change, I think, in like how things work at the city. So thanks for taking the time to come on and talk. Thanks so much for having me. Um, All right. So Prop F, this is the one that's a, um, if it were passed, would do, would switch us to the strong mayor system. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you maybe briefly explain for us what our current system is? And then we'll talk about what a strong mayor system is. 
Sure. Well, the, the current system we have is what they call a council, council manager system. And um, in essence, what that means is the chief administrative and executive power of the city is in the hands of the city manager, who is uh, not an elected official, but more of an appointed and hired official by the city. Um, and the mayor holds a seat, in essence, and a vote on the city council. Um, so that's the current form. And the, um, the, the issue here is that the, the chief administrative and executive officer, again, is not elected. So it's not a, really a very democratic position. Um, it's more of a hired position to, to, to run the city from an administrative standpoint, whereas what we're looking for in Prop F is to switch to a mayor council system. And in that system, the mayor, in our, which is a system that most large cities in this country have, um, whether that's New York, LA, Chicago, they all have the mayor council system. And in this system, what happens is the mayor would um, forfeit the ability to sit on the council, forfeit the, the vote on the council, um, and some of the, the privileges that, she, that the mayor currently has on the council in, in exchange. Um, the mayor would now become the chief administrative and executive officer for the city. So we would eliminate the city manager position. Um, so we would no longer have this kind of unelected chief administrative officer for the city. And now we would uh, allow the, the voters to choose who the chief executive is for the city. And that would be the mayor. Right. And so an executive, that's kind of talking about, you know, to put it into terms that maybe folks would understand that's like the executive branch is kind of like what our president is right as yes. the executive branch, whereas then city council becomes a little bit more of the, it's like the legislative branch. They're the ones that are setting the policy. Is that like a fair analogy? No, it's not perfect, but <laughs> that's, that's correct. And, and, okay. and it's really important. I think there has, I, I've heard a lot of people sh um, sharing some concerns about moving to a system in which the mayor would, would have the executive role in the city and in reality, really what we're doing is we're creating co-equal branches. So the, the mayor would really oversee the executive branch and function of the city, and the city council would have the legislative power. Um, so very much like the way that the, the, you know, the president and Congress kind of work in tandem. Right. And so that executive power, that means they're um, for example, hiring and firing the police chief, they're managing all the city departments. They're the ones who, I guess, are making sure that policies passed by city council are actually being enacted by all of our city employees and um, developing the processes necessary to make that work. Is that right? Correct. And, and what's also important, too, is in Austin's proposal while the, the, the mayor would be the chief executive, there are a lot of functions that the city council would, would now have. Obviously, the, the mayor would give up, like I said, to give up the seat on the city council. So all of the legislative agenda of the city would be set by the council. So any policy would have to be submitted by the council and be voted on by the council. The mayor would not have a vote in those legislative decisions. And, and, and for example, um, who appoints the city attorney, um, the mayor does that. But in terms of all the boards and commissions, you know, so I, I myself, I served as the vice chair of the Austin Music Commission, for example, um, only the city council members will be able to appoint people to the boards and commissions like the mm. planning commission, the downtown commission and such. So it's really important to understand that in terms of driving the, the policy, the city council would do that. And the, the mayor would be in a position of implementing the policy in and in, in response to what, what uh, citizens in the city want. Okay. 
So, um, but the mayor does have a veto power, right? Yes, there, 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 in, there is a veto power, um, and it can be overridden by city council. I, the, the ballot language for Prop F actually is, it's really unfortunate how they really wrote the language because they, they don't really speak to um, the fact that this veto can be overridden by a, a two thirds majority of uh, city council. So it's not an, just an outright major, uh, veto by the mayor. And that's really important because if, if people really understand the makeup of the current city council, we have 10 city council seats Mm-hmm. And six of them, in essence, are West Austin districts, and then four are East Austin districts. And so what we actually have right now is a situation in which the majority of the council, um, vis-a-vis the West Austin districts, could perhaps vote for something that doesn't reflect the most uh, diverse and inclusive iteration of the city, because a lot of the, the Black and Latino Hispanic community of Austin lives in those East districts, right? So in a lot of ways, what that veto power does is it ensures that we're always having the most equitable and inclusive iteration of implementation of policy. So council can approve something, but if the, if the mayor in that position felt like the, the council approved it, but it did not speak to the equitable uh, aims of the city at large, then that veto would be deployed in that case. But if but then council still has the opportunity to override that, which means if you know, all six West Austin districts, for example, agreed on something, but along with one or more of the East Austin city council members, um, then that veto would still be overridden because that would be the will of the, of the people here in Austin. Yeah. And then, you know, um, I think I want to go through maybe, maybe we'll start with city council and then we'll shift to mayor as far as like what their roles and responsibilities are. So, um, with city council, you know, like one concern I've heard of this, um, about this is and I, I've heard this from some sit, current city council members mm-hmm. who are like, they feel like this system could make them less powerful than they currently are now, um, that they would have less of a say because the mayor has a veto. Um, and yeah, so what what's kind of like your not to say that they can't be. I mean, maybe that's part of the goal, but, you yeah. know, can you talk a little bit about your response to that? Yeah, well, there, there are two things that are really important here. I think one is all these propositions, not just F, but also D through H, they're all about making Austin the most pro-democracy city in the country. And so if you're a current city council member, it's really important that you have to think about what's more important for this city, making sure that we uphold democracy, especially when it's being attacked at the state level, um, or that you maintain the power that you have in your current term that's going to last maybe two or four more years. Um, and, I, and I really hope that the answer to that is I want to make sure that I am supporting the things that are most democratic. Um, so, that's, so that's the first point. The second point is um, that's why it's really important that one of these um, aims is to add an 11th council district. And I, I really think that the, if you look at the makeup of the city council right now, it, we have these 10 districts and the, currently the mayor gets a vote on the council. So actually what's happening is the mayor is losing the ability to vote on the council. So I would argue that they're actually getting more power because now the mayor is losing the ability to vote in that room. Ability, it's, the mayor is losing the ability to set forth policy as a seat, with a seat at that table, right? So um, the council is actually gaining um, that seat back, so to speak, 
um, because now that 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 mayor seat is going to be converted into a city council seat or maybe people decide that we don't want an 11th district but i hope that we do um, so i really think that actually the council is getting more power through this i think um, everything from appointing the city clerk to appointing the city auditor to again those boards and commissions that's all because of the city council and the ability to introduce legislation will only be in the hands of city council members whereas the mayor can currently introduce legislation as well so I really think that if you look at it on its merits outside of your own current term as a city council member, you have to fundamentally see that this is a much more pro-democratic and pro-democracy way of, of going about things here locally. Yeah. I mean, I think to be fair, like, obviously, I think some of them are afraid they're losing some power, but, you know, you could also spin it that these these districts, you know, it's much easier to um they're, they can be fairly reflective of the people they represent. You know, they are district representatives. There's they're representing smaller areas of the city. Uh, we have this new 10-1 system. And so um, in having their power, they're providing power to all these neighborhoods that perhaps yeah. didn't in the past. Fully agree. I mean, in, in, in we I remember that a lot of the concern when we switched to 10-1 um, was about, oh, we're now we're going to go, we're almost, people were worried that we were giving council members too much power, mm -hmm. that we were going to go into this kind of ward politics scenario. And I think that we've, we've staved off a lot of those fears. Um, but I think in a way, this does ensure that that more of that power is distributed amongst the entire council and um, not getting into that kind of district ward mentality that prevents our city from moving forward on a lot of these issues around housing or land development or affordability, homelessness that are, that affect the entire city and not just one district. Right. Um, you talked about the 11th council district. Um, I know that's a different ballot number, but I, I also know that they're pretty heavily linked um, and, and we're kind of meant to, I think, be part of the same proposal. Can you just mm -hmm. touch on that really quick? Like what that, so the point of that would be, um, it seems like, you know, your goal is that both would pass, right? So then by having that 11th one, we are replacing that mayor's vote because there are currently 11 votes on city council. Mm -hmm. I assume part of that is like, we want an odd number of votes, probably. <laughs> I would have to yeah. assume that helps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so having an 11th council district. Yeah, so, help. you know, again, the it's really unfortunate how they, the city, uh, how they chose to write the language for Prop F. Right. Which is about the, the, the switched from from council manager to mayor council. Um, but in terms of Prop G, which is around the 11th district, really what this does is it again, this is about distributing more power and making Austin more pro democracy. And right now we you know, we're getting to the point. I mean, this is a fast growing city. We're the fastest growing city in the country for many years. We're getting to a point where these council districts are representing. I mean, they're almost to the point of starting to represent people that way you would see maybe in the state house. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we need to make sure that we are being responsive to what's happening in the city. And so if we're seeing 30, 40 plus thousand people move to Austin each year, then we're obviously growing pretty rapidly. And adding this 11th district will not only, you know, potentially be the tie breaking seat on the council, but it'll also I think it, you know, and I can't speak to exactly where that district will be made up, but if I were to guess, um, 
I, I think that it would give Austin an opportunity to potentially have even more representation on the council from an ethnic and inclusivity standpoint. Um, we have, I think, one of the fastest growing Asian American populations, for example, in Austin, and there's not anyone on the council who's Asian American. So um, I could see a scenario in which this 11th district would potentially uh, give us an opportunity to do that um, while retaining the, the great uh, presence of, of Hispanic and, um, you know, obviously we have one African-American person on the council as well. So I really think that the 11th district, it's, yes, it's a tie-breaking uh, thing around, you know, in essence, because we're going to lose the, the mayor's vote on the council. But I think it's also about making sure that we're representing both the growth that's happening in Austin and then also the, the ethnic and um, uh, diverse makeup of the city. Right. Because um, for folks that aren't familiar, when we um, originally made these 10 city council districts, several of them were designed as to be these opportunity districts. So yeah, like district one and two and um, three and I guess four too. But mm-hmm. um, and and there's a growing fear as we are about to redraw our districts mm-hmm. that we might lose some of those because of the way our city is changing very rapidly yeah. and people are being pushed into different areas. And mm-hmm. um, like you mentioned, I, I have heard quite a few folks um, suggest the idea of an Asian American opportunity district um, mm-hmm. as well to try and increase that representation. On city yeah, council. well, and, and you can see, I mean, you just touched on it at the state level. Obviously, we we and we we see the way in which gerrymandering can sometimes and, and often honestly uh, impact elections and turn out and who's able to vote and participate and choose representation. And at the local level, what we're actually seeing is how displacement around housing, for example, is impacting districts and the makeup of those districts. So it's, I think it's really important that we stay attuned to that. And I'm, I'm eager to, to monitor the work of the redistricting commission that I, I know they were just named. Um, and I, I, th- I think that this 11th district, what it does is it, like I said, it just gives us an opportunity to better reflect the actual makeup of the city. Right. Um, okay. So that's a little bit about city council. I want to shift to the mayor because I feel like that's like, you know, the big, the big bulk of this or the change. Um, and so you mentioned a few times, um, well, a few things the mayor does. We'll start with one one concern I've heard or potential concern I've heard about this proposal is um, what if the mayor, you know, is not that good at running a big city, right? Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's you're, I guess you're asking for perhaps a different skill set than maybe our current mayor might have, who is serving more as like this 11th member of city council. He kind of is this person that's like monitoring the city council meeting and keeping everyone like in line and like talking to each other, you know, he's like playing more of that role. Whereas it seems like under this new system, you might want a different skill set. It won't be our same mayor anyway, but um, you you might want someone who has a little bit more of those executive skills, I guess. Um, is the mayor able to, I want to clarify something. One, mm-hmm. if you could talk about that. And two, um, could the mayor though still hire, like he can still hire administrative staff to help him do that stuff right it's not like he personally has to be great at all of these like small management things right he can still hire professional staff but he gets to choose who those people are yes yes exactly so um the the mayor um would appoint the department heads um the mayor or the council could remove the city attorney um, the, whereas the council, like I said, would appoint things like the city clerk and city auditor. But I think in terms of the skill set, I, I really just go back to that point of 
the mayor council system is already in place and it's the dominant form of government government for most mm. large cities in America. So this skill set exists. We see it in the New York's, LA's, Chicago's, um, Houston's, the in the Columbus, Ohio's, in the San Francisco's, in the Seattle's, Denver's, all of these cities, they have this skill set clearly. Um, and I think it's, it's it, for me, and, and this is me speaking personally, if, if I have to choose between do I believe do I believe in democracy at the local level, especially, and do I trust voters to put someone and put the right person in power more than I trust um, an unelected person to do the right thing? I'm going to go with the will of voters. That's what democracy is. I mean, I think we just saw with the winter storm, for example, um, there were council members who were forced because of the lack of responsiveness from the city manager's office to write a letter to the city manager asking for additional resources and responsiveness during the winter storm. And so that's what happens when you have this latency between the chief executive or administrative power of the city and the will of the people and the, 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 the livelihoods of the people. And I think that fundamentally, the number one skill set that the mayor should have is a desire to serve the people. And whereas I think with the elected city manager, I think that the the allegiance is more to the apparatus of city government and keeping that, you know, operational. It's more like, um, you know, I, I'm in the business world. So I know that a lot of co times companies, they have they have founders and the founders are attached to the, the, the missions of the company. But then sometimes they, they're professional, like chief operating officers, for example, who they're hired and they're brought in to kind of operationalize things, professionalize the the organization, but fundamentally in terms of who's who's really driving um, the connection to the mission. And in the case of the city, we have a, the mission of the city is to service the, the needs of the community and ensure high quality of life for as many people in Austin as possible. And, mm -hmm. and so I really feel like that's the number one thing that we should be looking for when you talk about skill set. And, and there's so many cities and examples, not just in the U.S. either, around the world that, that have that function. I, I think Austin's going to have plenty of people who have the right match of, of experiences and skill sets to, to do that. Right. So kind of what you're talking about, you know, you'll hear from this pro city manager folks that, you know, they like that system because it hires a professional city manager, basically. Um, and what you're saying is um, perhaps leaning slightly more, you know, finding a mayor that has good skills, but also leaning more towards someone who the mayor not just is in charge of that management, but probably is more mission, has a mission focus behind it, right? Like they have an agenda, you know, the city manager is supposed to be like a kind of a neutral person, Um they're yeah, not and always. I would, I would argue. <laughs> it's, I would argue it's not even a neutral person. I mean, it's it literally is a hired gun. I mean, Austin is an attractive city to live in, and so there are people who live all over this country who have almost no connection to the city of Austin. They don't understand the issues that have been here for years, if not decades, and they move here because it's a good job with a really good salary in a good city, and. And then they're suddenly in charge of the city. That's just not, um, that's not how democracy should work. And, and fundamentally, we need people in both city council and the mayor's seat who are well attuned to the issues facing the city. And, um, and, I, and I, I fundamentally believe that we're going to be able to find that type of person. Yeah. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit more about some examples or like more powers of um, the mayor, because I know like a lot of these things, or I assume like some of this proposal is brought up because people who work with government have had some frustrating experiences. Like I know that um, the big one for me or that I heard from the public was this past summer when, you know, we had protests and a lot of conversation around our city's budget. And, you know, for the first time I heard people like saying Spencer Cronk, our city manager's name, and he became a public figure in a way that I really don't think he had been before or city Mm -hmm. manager in Austin had been in a while. And people were like actively protesting at his house um, over wanting the budget to look different. And then which city council ultimately, you know, asked for. Um, but also the hiring and firing of the police chief. This became like a big topic of contention. So if people aren't familiar, our city council and the mayor are not under this system, are not able to directly fire, I guess it was like demote the -hmm. police chief. Um, That's only the job of the city manager Mm -hmm. and he elected not to do it. Um, Can you speak to that situation a little bit? I mean, I assume that this is like a potential benefit of, a strong mayor system is that the mayor could more directly um, make a change like that. Yeah, well, I, I, it's a, it's a really great point to bring up, and I, I think I think whenever there's any issue around public safety, and it, what you're really inherently talking about is trust. And the only way that you can have an effective police department in a city is if you have a police department that has the trust of the community, and the events of the, the last year, especially we've, we've seen, and not even just the last year, but many years, um, I've been in Austin for the last 12 years and went to UT even before that. Um, and we've seen time and time again, events happen with our police department in which the, the trust was not there with the community. And, and that's what I talk about when I say that this city manager is kind of a hired gun because that person in this case, Spencer Cronk is coming into our city, not really aware of all these different times in which that trust was, was tested. And so um, he is possibly less inclined to want to make a move and make a change around the, the, the police chief, because in, in that person's eyes, maybe there's still more trust in the city manager's eyes, then the community actually feels and that in the, maybe even the case of the council or the mayor feels exist. So I, I, I think that, I don't think that these propositions are about responding to the events of the last year with the police department, because I think we're just always trying to move towards more democracy. I think that's what 10 was about as well mm-hmm. um, years ago. But in this case, the mayor having the ability to, you know, appoint the department heads is a critical function, especially around public safety and law enforcement, because like I said, very much like the winter storm, we need to remove the latency um, from, from city hall and people are dealing with things that need solutions and responsiveness. And the fact that the city manager's office oftentimes is very latent and very, very slow to respond to those needs. Um, is it's, it's been proven time and time again, especially around the police department, especially around, you know, for me as a black man, um, I know that, um, you know, in my community, there is a a great disconnect between, um, the Austin police department and the trust that it has within the community at large. 
and the city, especially in comparison to where, you know, if you're Spencer Cronk, if you're looking at the city and the makeup of the council, for example, which is more aligned with representing West Austin, where, where you see displacement of Black people over the last, you know, seven, eight decades has, has led to um, the, the Black community not really even being in these more districts now. So for, for me, I think putting that, that power to remove or appoint the, the uh, police chief back into the hands of or into the hands of someone that was elected is just again it's another sign of what a democracy should do and you know i can't imagine a scenario in which there's someone on the the side of we should have a professional city manager who believes that the events of the last year haven't shown at least some weakness in the relationship between the police department and the city from a trust standpoint and the city manager and or the mayor whoever that person is should be constantly looking at what they should do to restore that trust and build that trust and, and part of that is picking the right leader so that was joa with austinites for progressive reform if you want to learn even more about Prop F, you can check out Austinites for Progressive Reform's website at yesonfgaustin.org. And then for the other side of things, you can visit Austin for All People's website at austinforallpeople.org. There's also another group that is formed in opposition to Prop F called By the People ATX, which includes a lot of labor leaders and some criminal justice advocates. You can check out their website at bythepeopleatx.org. So that's Prop F. Um, now, I know I already mentioned Prop G a bit earlier, but I wanted to bring it up one more time because there's been a lot of confusion around it. As I said, Prop G is very closely tied to Prop F. It seems pretty clear that if you support Prop F, you should also vote for Prop G. But there's a growing number of voices out there who are opposed to Prop F, but still support Prop G because they feel like we should expand the number of city council districts we have, especially because it could allow us to increase Asian American representation at City Hall. However, if Prop F fails and Prop G passes, we'll end up with 12 members on city council, an even number which could mean tied votes. So then we'll likely have to come back in two years and vote to add a 13th member of city council so that once again we'll have an odd number of votes. Admittedly confusing, but that's the situation. So we go into this issue a bit deeper with the Prop G guide on our Instagram page. If you want to learn more, I recommend you check that out. Uh, but for now, let's talk about the final proposition on the ballot, Prop H. Here's what the ballot language says, quote, Shall the city charter be amended to adopt a public campaign finance program who requi which requires the city clerk to provide up to two $25 vouchers to every registered voter who may contribute them to candidates for city office who meet the program requirements, end quote. And so what the heck does that mean? <laughs> Essentially, Prop H asks voters if we should bring what is known as a democracy dollars program to Austin. This program was first launched in Seattle and is designed to counteract the power of big money in politics by giving every registered voter in Austin two $25 vouchers to donate to the candidate of their choice during city council and mayoral elections. Prop H is on the ballot as the result of a citizen signature drive led by Austinites for Progressive Reform, but unlike some of the other citizen signature drive propositions, 
Prop H and the Democracy Dollars Program actually comes out of a recommendation made by the city's 2018 Charter Review Commission, which is basically a group of Austin residents um, who are appointed by city council and told to review our city's charter, which is like our local constitution, and to make recommendations to the council to improve and enhance transparency and the general functions of city government. To explain all of this for us, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Jessica Polvino. Jessica is a local attorney who actually served on the city's 2018 Charter Review Commission. She's also involved with the group Democracy Dollars ATX, which formed to support the passage of Prop H. Okay, let's give that interview a listen. So uh, the Charter Review Commission um, was a commission formed... I think we were actually formed in late 2017 and then we met in, in 2018 and gave our recommendations in 2018. Um, but we were a group of citizens. Um, each of us was appointed by a city council member and then the mayor also had an appointee. And we were directed um, by a council resolution to look into, I can't remember how many issues there were, I think five or six different issues um, that the city was facing and to make recommendations back to council. One of the issues that we looked at was our campaign finance system. Um, and we, you know, initially started from the perspective of, you know, what is the problem that we're trying to solve for? What are the issues with our current campaign finance structure? Um, and what we found, you know, we really started with the data. Let's look at contribution data. And what we found is that the the dollars are were not aligning with district representation, and that was concerning to us because um, we were the first charter review commission after the 10-1 commission. So the reason we have 10-1 was because of, and I don't know what year they met, um, but it was the prior charter review commission recommended a 10-1 form of government. Um, and the goal of that was to have district representation, right? So you would have city council members that were representing the, the interests of their geographic district. Um, and when we started looking at the campaign contributions in 2018, what we saw is the campaign contributions and our current system was actually undermining the 10-1 form of government because you had campaign contributions coming in from zip codes where council that council members did not represent. So there was, you know, a possibility of an elected official kind of having a split interest. They were serving the interest of their consist constituency on one hand and then their donors on the other hand. Mm. So people, um, so donors from other were contributing to other, so maybe you live in district 10 in West Austin and that person might be giving money to a district one or two candidate in East Austin. That, exactly. that could be happening. Okay. Exactly. And so we started from the perspective of that's a, that's a problem. Um, and that is undermining to the system of government that we've chosen. And so how do we best fix it? Um, and we formed a um, campaign finance um, subcommittee um, that looked into what are all the options um, for fixing this. And we considered a number of options um, and eventually landed on the small dollar voucher program as the best solution. And going back to that design feature that I mentioned, one of the reasons that we designed the program so that you could only give your city council 
voucher to a city council member in your district is to preserve the integrity of 10-1. Um, but we, we went through, we met for six months and that, that sounds like a lot of time. It really wasn't a lot of time. And so we actually met weekly. Um, we met for, you know, usually two to three hours at a time. Um, and we had various experts come in and talk to us about campaign finance and how to best structure our system. Once we landed on the small dollar voucher program, we actually talked to um, folks from Seattle. We kind of have a, we had a model for that. Um, Seattle has implemented it very successfully. Um, and so we wanted to know, you know, how they implemented it. Um, and we took all that into consideration in making our recommendation to council. So our final work product was um, a report that we presented to city council. Um, it recommended democracy dollars. It had the specific um, charter amendment language in the recommendation. And that language has really kind of served as the basis for, for Prop H. You know, there are a few tweaks, but it's 95% the same. Right. And so what happened to it once you gave it to city council? Like, um, I know that sometimes they can put something on the ballot or sometimes they just float it and wait for a citizen signature drive to make it happen. Like, what was city council's initial response or why did it take until now for it to get on that ballot? You know, I don't know. I can't answer that. I, I will say, you know, at the time that we presented our recommendation, there was a lot happening at the city level with the land development code and some other things. And so I think at the time, um, perhaps it was just, you know, not a top priority. Um, and so it did take the citizen petition drive to, to get it on the ballot. Okay. And so um, if this program gets implemented, the idea is you're allowing you know, regular people who probably don't normally contribute to campaigns to have um, a financial say, but my understanding is kind of there's a feeling that there's an even larger benefit. Can you talk about, you know, it's not just that you're able to give money to a candidate, but what, what comes out of that? You know, obviously you're talking about writing the scales a bit as far as district representation, but what are some other benefits you see from, you know, empowering uh, Austinites in this way? Yeah, that's a great question because there are a lot of benefits beyond just um, getting people, you know, donating money. Um, and we, we've seen this, we have data from Seattle, so we know we can say with some level of certainty what benefits come from a program like this. Um, one of the big benefits is, is voter engagement. So when people contribute, they are more invested in races and they're more likely to go vote. So you see increase in voter turnout, which is really important. Um, I mean, particularly with some of the, I think, voter suppression measures that you're seeing happening right now, it's really important to get people out and to get people voting and to motivate them to vote. Um, I think another thing that they saw in Seattle, but I would expect we would see here is um, diversity in candidates. So this just opens the door up for people who aren't you know, necessarily connected to a wealthy donor who don't have their own wealth. It opens the door for them to run. Um, and, and because it does take money to run a campaign. Um, and so this provides a funding source um, for folks um, to run who maybe otherwise wouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanna talk a little bit about the cost of this program. I know there's been a little bit of back and forth or 
disagreement maybe with the city or confusion maybe for the public as well. I've seen some estimates that it could cost $800,000. I've seen some estimates $2 million. I mean, either way, not a huge chunk of our, our city's overall budget, but um, where does those numbers come from? I mean, obviously, if you were to say $50 times everyone who lives in the city, it would be way bigger than that. Um, I assume right. there's got to be some assumptions happening as to how many people use the program, or can you talk a little bit about the cost? Sure. Well, and I think there is a lot of misinformation out, out there about the cost. And I think one thing that's important to note is the program is capped. So, you know, we're not, this is not a blank check. We're not writing a blank check here. The program is capped and the cost is capped. And so that's why you are seeing the debate is happening between the numbers of, is it going to cost 800,000 or is it going to cost 2 million to administer? And as you say, I mean, either way, it is a very, very small um, piece of the city's budget. Um, but the other thing I would point out, you know, if you're getting into the weeds of this in terms of, is it going to cost 800,000? Is it going to cost 2 million? We have data. We know what it costs to run a program like this because Seattle did it. They did it from scratch. Essentially the same program that we have, except theirs is much bigger. So when we are sending out two vouchers per person, they're sending out eight per person every four year cycle. So their program is much larger, but in terms of the administrative costs, we know what it costs. Um, they issued a report. It had detailed expenditures as far as, you know, what it's going to cost to mail these vouchers, what it's going to cost to print the vouchers, what it would cost to put a system in place to manage this. Um, and so we did look at this issue, the issue of cost with the Charter Review Commission, um, because, you know, from an administrative standpoint, we needed to ensure before we recommended this program that it was feasible and that it fit into our existing city budget. You know, we didn't wanna make recommendations that were pie in the sky and we're gonna cost the city a ton of money. So we did look into cost um, and we did put estimates um, in our report. And so the 800,000 figure that, that you're talking about came from the Charter Review Commission's work um, in, in not only reviewing the data from Seattle, but we actually invited the administrator of the Seattle program down he came to Austin, obviously this was pre-COVID. Um, he came to Austin, he answered all of our questions about the program, talked to us about um, you know, administrative challenges, what he would have done differently, lessons learned. Um, so we really dig, dig in to ensure that this program could be administered. Um, I, and I will say, as to this debate about program administration, you know, when you're talking about the difference between 800,000 and 2 million, it, administrative concerns at that level, I don't think should be dictating our big city policy, right? These are big policy decisions. How much is our democracy in Austin? How much do we want to invest in it? Um, so so I, I don't necessarily, you know, buy that, that a distinction between 800 and 2 million should be driving a decision here. But, um, but I do think it's, I do think it will cost significantly less um, than right. what the city post numbers represent. And then who is getting these democracy dollars? Are they just being sent like in the mail, every Austinite, every registered voter, everyone eligible to vote? Like who actually gets them? And are, are they just sent out in the mail or digital or does it not say? 
So originally, uh, initially when the program is set up, they will be sent out by mail and they will be sent out to every registered voter. Um, eventually, um, there may be an, some kind of electronic delivery method um, that's built in, um, but initially it will be by mail. Right. Um, and I know that um, you and, and this group that you um, are kind of advocating for this um, are sort of separate from Austinites for Progressive Reform, which is the group that actually put all of these on the ballot, as well as I think D through H is all Austinites for Progressive Reform. Um, one, are you all a separate entity? And two, why, I guess? Um, I know you're kind of just focused on this proposition, it seems. Right, yeah, we're, I mean, we are very much aligned with Austinites for Progressive Reform in terms of Proposition H. Um, the reason, um, it's a good question as to why we're separate. I don't, I wasn't around when, you know, when we were formed, so I can't fully answer the question. Um, but I will say Democracy Dollars has a very broad base of support. It is really what we're seeing um, is bipartisan support for this issue. And so I think there's support for Prop H where maybe other people would be, you know, people are divided maybe on the other propositions, but they'll come together on Prop H to support it. Um, and, and that's what we're really advancing in our group is this kind of bipartisan support for Prop H. Um, and we just don't talk about the other propositions because I think everyone has, uh, you know, everybody has different views. We have a right. on the other. And it, I mean, it seems to me anyway, that Proposition H also has the advantage of, of having gone through the city charter review process, you know, not right. all of these other things that are on the ballot, I think have received the same, I know they've done their own work, but uh, level of scrutiny at this like very public way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I, you know, with the Charter Review Commission, as I said, we met for six months, every meeting was open to the public. You know, we had people come comment. We, we went out, we met, we typically met at City Hall. That's where our regular meetings were. But then we went out into the public for public meetings um, to take public comment on these as well. So we really did have an opportunity to talk to a lot of people um, in designing the, the program. Um, got a lot of great feedback and, uh, you know, really it had a lot of support, even at that stage. Um, and you can look, I keep referring people back to our charter review commission report because we did put a lot of work into writing it. And I'm so happy to have people read it. Um, but it has a full listing of, of, you know, every organization and person who supported um, democracy dollars at that time. Great. And so this democracy dollars program, if it's passed, will it impact any of our city's existing um, money election rules? <laughs> um, you know, I know that we already have in place as a city certain restrictions on spending and things like that. Does this impact that or change those at all? Or are they just kind of, is this just separate? So it. I guess it impacts it in that it's going to interact. You know, if, if a person elects, um, if a candidate elects um, to participate in the democracy dollars program, then they do have to, um, you know, make certain representations about what they uh, will not do with the money. And there are some restrictions on them. So I would kind of view it as a parallel path for a candidate. A candidate can either raise money under our existing campaign finance rules, or 
they can opt into democracy dollars. And if they opt into democracy dollars, there are some different rules, um, but it doesn't take anything away from our existing campaign finance rules. Okay. Cause one thing I think that some people I could see them worrying about or see a worry is, is this, obviously it's democratizing who gets the money, but is it still injecting like a whole bunch of new money in politics, which is something people are trying to get away from? Well, it's not, I will say, I don't think the program is designed to take money out of politics. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more designed to equalize the money that's in politics Mm -hmm. and to redistribute the money that's in politics. Um, And I think it's, you know, what we saw, they've been talking about it in every campaign, I think at the national level, um, small dollar donors, you know, getting, getting more contributions, maybe they're smaller in amount but, but it's getting more people engaged with the, uh, with campaign contributions. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to take money out of politics. <laughs> I do think it's going to equalize though, um, influence, right. you know, which is it, it, taking money out of politics. I don't know. That might be a losing um, <laughs> at this point, but I guess a little but ambitious. I can, yeah. I think we can, um, as a, as a good starting point, we can, we can start to equalize. Um, equal, equalize influence. Right. And the candidates have to meet certain requirements in order to be eligible for this money. Like you mentioned, I think they have to like get a certain number of signatures or raise a certain amount of small amount of money on their own as well to prove that they're like a legitimate candidate, quote unquote, and not just, you know, sometimes like, especially in mayoral elections I've seen in Austin, we tend to get candidates that I don't know would ever reach a, a barrier <laughs> of that. That seemed It's like joke candidates to a certain extent. My understanding is democracy dollars is designed to ensure that the money is going to candidates who are at least proven they have some amount of support in the community. Yeah, that's right. And that that's an important threshold. We wanted to ensure that before someone received public money, they had a threshold showing of public support. Um, and that was a feature that we built in, um, you know, at the at the Charter Review Commission level that that made it over to Prop H. Um, and I think that threshold is really important because we don't, you know, we want to democracy dollars is important for for candidates that that can demonstrate that threshold level of support. We don't want to just be giving money out to everyone, right? <laughs> to everyone who declares their candidacy, um, you do have to do some legwork on the front end to to, to qualify. And that's our show for today. I don't think I have to remind any of you listening, but please, please, please try and get out there and vote in this election. Some seriously consequential issues are on the ballot, and May elections tend to suffer from terribly low voter turnout. I don't know about you, but I don't want less than 10% of our city to have the final say on all of these issues. So a reminder, early voting for this election lasts from April 19th through April 27th, and election day is May 1st. So grab a friend and head out to the polls. You can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. One quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And as always, you can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting our website at theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. This show is hosted by me, Amy Sansbury, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To learn more 
about KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. Thank you.